Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. How do you create an entire grocery category and continue to maintain the leading share even after private label comes along? Moji Drinks has grown from homemade cold-pressed juice sold at local markets and music festivals into one of the fastest-growing beverage brands in the UK, now in national distribution with their functional juice shots and take-home bottles. Rich Goldsmith founded the business in 2015 with his best mate, Charlie Leet Cook. Rich has a degree in engineering and worked in commercial and finance roles before he decided to pursue his passion for innovation and healthy living. In this episode, we talk about how Rich and his team have built and managed a strong omnichannel business, the importance of creating the ideal end-to-end consumer experience, and of course, as always, the different phases of growth of the business and the all-important question of funding and investment. This is one of my favourite interviews so far, so I hope you enjoy it and learn as much as I did doing it. Rich Goldsmith, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Fee. Thanks for having me. Listen to me, what are those surfboards behind you? Tell me, one is smaller, one is bigger. I know nothing about surfing. Whose is the smaller one? Whose is the bigger one? They are both mine. Not to suggest that I have any talent whatsoever. So um, uh, when it comes to surfing, but yeah, we... we, Aspirational. uh, Yeah, exactly. Aspirational. But we've we've relocated down uh, closer to the closer to the coast. So uh, hence the surfboards. Okay. And why would you pick a smaller surfboard than a bigger surfboard? Like what decision do you make? Depends on the conditions. But um, as I say, it doesn't make much difference when you're me, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's it's on the conditions. You go smaller if it's bigger uh, generally, or if actually if you want more performance on the waves. But Right. Um, yeah, it's, I'm no expert. So. But you can stand up on your board? Yeah, I'd give it a good go. Okay, good man, good man. <laughs> so listen, Rich, you are the founder and CEO or just the MD of Moju Drinks. Tell our listeners all about Moju. What is it? What does the range look like? Who buys it? Where do we find it? All of those nice things. And I believe you just had your biggest month ever this January, which really says something about your business. So we're dying to find out more. Yeah, that's right. So um, Moju's a company I set up in 2015 alongside a really good mate of mine called Charlie. So um, it's a food and beverage business uh, established in London. We launched the the UK's first range of functional shots um, and we built that category from uh, zero to over 15 million pounds in retail sales value. So, and it's really showing no signs of stopping. Um, We represent about 40% of that category in terms of market share. And what size are the competitors like in market share? What's the next guys? The biggest guys are essentially the own label retailers. Okay. In terms of the offerings there, uh, there are a few smaller brands, but they're in sort of single digit percentage. So you've kept the big lead. You created the category and kept the big chunk of the market. That's amazing. That's right. Yeah. Um, and we expect to grow sort of high, high double digits again uh, this year. So as I said, it's a category that um, it's an insurgent category that 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 really has only been around for for less than five years, um, significantly less than five years. Wow. Actually, we launched shots in 2016 into grocery retail, um, and so it's grown grown to that size in that time. I mean, it actually, funny enough, it, it it's out. It was outpacing the growth, and it was bigger than than no low alcohol. No way for at least last year. So. There's obviously not as much hype around uh, hype around it. There's a lot of hype around certain categories at the moment, but this sure. is one that's sort of building 
building in the background and and really serving a consumer need that, that has been missing. So talk to us, for those of our listeners who don't know yet what we're talking about in terms of shots. So what do they look like and what's inside the product generally and why are your products different? Yeah, so there's uh, our range consists of four products at the moment. Um, a ginger shot, a turmeric shot, a vitamin C shot and a vitamin D shot. Uh-huh. And they come in two formats. Okay. So a 60 mil, a 60 mil shot. So it's a grab and go, Little one like that. palm of your hand type thing. And then a take home product, which is 500 mil, which is essentially the same product. And that's in a bigger chunky bottle. Exactly. Bigger bottle. I really like that bottle. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's distinctive as well, which is obviously uh, super important. And what's really interesting about the take home format is one, the habitual nature of the product. Um, really suits the dosing bottle format and take-home format. Uh, So people tend to take it on a daily basis. It's becoming a fridge staple. Um, And the way that we've done that is, of course, utilize the bigger format rather than saying, let's create loads of small, let's create a multi-pack out of, say, six, seven, eight shots, which is obviously more more wasteful from a packaging perspective. Sure. So who would take one of these shots? And like, you know, is it literally like a shot of goodness? It's it's that, and it and it's got a real whack as well. So it's it's potent, it's powerful across the range. We really focus on that experience, and it has to be a memorable experience. It's got to be something that's quite motivating. You know, we say there's nothing more motivating than a hit of a Moju shot. Okay, and really that's why our fans are into us. Okay, um, we exist to serve that need, and then and then help people supplement their busy and sort of active lives um, with a with a food first approach to nutrition. And that's, that's, that's really what we're about. We're not a refreshment. You know, we're not here to refresh people. We're here to provide a function forward product. Okay. And it's basically, it's not like you're filling up your tummy with your juice in the morning, you know, your glass of juice. It's a totally different need state. It's, it's like Absolutely. goodness in a shot, almost like instead of taking a vitamin tablet or something like that in exactly. your mind. And what we focus on is the, the best way to, I guess, to, to think about it is the compressed nature of the, of, of the liquid. So, it's the fact that it's impactful. It's the fact that it's concentrated, um, which de- which means we can deliver different different functions through that through that format, um, and that's what makes it so interesting. Is there a particular way that you make it that's different to how it's usually made, or how do you make it? Yeah, we. Um, I mean, we really. I guess we we we'll, we might touch on this later when it comes to kind of the differentiating factors, and it's it's quality for us. So it's a, a relentless pursuit of quality, and and that is one using whole ingredients. So we're, we're very, it's a, it's a very abnormal position to be in where you get a company making the bulk of their product, the majority of their product from, from whole ingredients pressed fresh in the factory every day. Okay. How are they often made? What's the alternative to that? They'll often be pureed. So um, at, at point of production, so they'll be pureed, pasteurized, uh, and then shipped over in barrels. So, so you've, got a, you've got a product which is essentially denatured um, by definition because it's been heated. Um, we don't do that. So we actually press the whole ingredient and we work on a minimal processing methodology. So we use a process called HPP, uh, which basically is, is, is kinder to the ingredients. It doesn't heat them to heat them to a point at which they will denature. Okay, fab. So who buys you now? What kind of people do you find buy Moju and have it in the fridge or, you know, will buy a shot out and about? Yeah, it's it's very much uh, active people. I mean, that's our that's our core audience. Um, people who are naturally uh, naturally more inclined to be active each day. Um, I mean, it, it applies to a lot of people nowadays. Pretty everyone's uh, everyone's very very busy and and pretty active. So 
Um, and that's what we, that's why we're here. We're basically here to support those, that's that type of lifestyle. So the typical Moju consumer is really kind of atypical because we have, we've got a very large female audience, but then at the same time, it probably weights slightly towards the female audience, um, about 60, 40, maybe a little less now. Um, but it's a broad range of people from all walks of life. Um, and again, that's what makes it so interesting. And that's part of our brand positioning as well is that, you know, we're not here to serve a little niche audience of, of people who are into yoga and, uh, and things like that. We're here to actually provide a product that a lot of people can get into and engage with. So one of the things I always say, actually, when I'm talking to clients or in, in talks and stuff, is that often insurgent brands find a way of democratising a niche and bringing it to the mass market, don't they? You know, And that's how you drive that growth, which is really what you're doing. So what size are you now? What size is the category? You said 15 million. What kind of size are you guys? And you just had your biggest month in January. You know, talk to us about that. Yeah, so we're 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 on to do uh, nigh on sort of nine million in retail sales this year. Like, I had no. That's can I just say that is such a shock because I've only ever seen you really when I'm in London uh, because I don't think you're much in in Ireland yet, are you? But I, you know, whenever I go and do safaris in London and and walking around the shops and looking at it, you know, your stand out in Whole Foods is just amazing. I never thought people would be buying nine million quids worth of this stuff in less than how many years? Five years? Yeah, less than five years. So the, that's massive, Fritch. Yeah, it's quite <laughs> significant. Um, and I don't think everybody knows that, do they? I mean, that's pretty big. No, and I don't know whether that's uh, it speaks to, to to the way that we've sort of grown the business um, and and the way that Charlie and I are. Um, right. We tend to kind of build things uh, without much noise. Okay. But it it, it is a case of more noise is coming um, because it's now starting to really pick up pace. I mean, when you're, when you're building a category that's entirely novel, um, it takes time. Um, and building a brand, as you know, also takes time. Uh, it's not an overnight thing. So, um, How have you done it? I mean, how have you got to 9 million in this quiet, not so gentle way? Uh, you've obviously been making noise in the right place. Otherwise, you wouldn't have got to 9 million in retail sales in that short a time. What is it that has worked for you? Um, I know that's a big question. There's a, there's a few. There's a few things. Um, I guess there's. We built something truly differentiated. Is is one aspect, um, and we've been relentlessly focused on that one thing. Um, and and by that I mean is in in the category that we're in. It's quite a it's quite a, com- a complex concept to get your head around the fact that you have a format that you can deliver a lot of need states through, or serve a lot of need states and deliver a lot of different functionalities through. So you have to really be focused on that thing to really understand how that category works and then ha- what the consumers are buying into. So that's what we've been relentless, relentlessly focused on. Okay. Um, and I guess the, the way that we've um, continued to build and stay out ahead and continue to grow the category, I guess, is that, you know, constantly pushing innovation, constantly being different in our DNA as well. So, I guess we're getting more people entering the category, but we welcome that. That's not a bad thing. That's helping to swell and grow the category okay. as, as, you know, in, in, a, in a bigger sense. So, and the fact that the differentiation is in our DNA, I guess that means anyone who comes into the category is just kind of playing, constantly playing catch up. Right. Um, and because we're focused on it and that's, that's what really makes the difference. That's one aspect. Um, but there's obviously a bunch of other things that I can I can touch on. Talk to us a little bit about in our prep calls. You talked about you know delivering the best customer experience all the way along the customer journey. Talk to us a little bit about your philosophy and your approach to that. Yeah, so we've got 
we're lucky and fortunate in that um, we, we we're able to build a strong omni-channel business because the product and the format tends to work in multiple channels. So because we've got a grab and go product and we've got a take home product, that therefore means that we can work in multiple channels. Um, and in order to give the customer, both the customer and the consumer the best experience, we've always focused on taking channel by channel and trying to trying our very best to be best in class in whichever channel we're in um, to make sure the value proposition is as strong as possible um, and we're communicating it as well as as, as strong as strongly as we can in whichever channel we're in um, and i guess we'd rather take it slower in channels um, in order to 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 execute as best we can so that's that's how we've te- that's how we've approached that. How do you manage your different channels? Because you've obviously got a strong. How strong is your D two C business versus your retail? I mean, what's the split? So D two C, we we look at ecom across the across across the business. So right, that will include D two C, Amazon, um, online retail as well. Because the reality is, um, whilst the the connection with the consumer is very different in D two C. But the reality is that a shopper who's shopping online can shop from multiple places, right? So the way we look at it is broader, broader e-com. And that's around 30% of our business now. What was it before lockdown? Around sort of 15%. So it's increased significantly, but it's, it's, still, it's still charging. Actually, D2C is super exciting for us. Um, and that's a good example, actually, of when I talked to being best in class, we actually switched up our uh, website um, in April last year, just after the first lockdown. Um, and that was off the back of a rebrand as well. So, and that was a big focus for us to actually position the website, look at the customer journey, look at the user, the user experience and the, consumer, and the customer experience in real detail. Yeah. Knowing that whatever we launched then was not going to be the finished article and we're going to have to iterate on. And so that's what we've done. And we've now got a highly... You know, what I would, something I'm incredibly proud of, and the team has put together an incredibly effective um, uh, platform for us on B2C. We're really starting to, as I said, really starting to pick up pace there. And what we're, what we're able to do, as you know, through D2C is, is serve the consumer um, in a way that, and have a relationship with the consumer that we, we just simply can't have in offline. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, then please do share it on social media and take a minute or two to write a review on iTunes. It would make a big difference in allowing us to interview even more super guests with great advice that can transform how you do business. I uh, read an article yesterday. uh, It was a paper done by Accenture Interactive and they're talking about CX versus BX. So, you know, CX is all about the customer experience and this idea that, you know, we need to bring customers on a journey along their path to purchase and they're now touting this new BX, which, you know, is obviously big consultancy type stuff. But it was great because what they're saying is that what companies need to realise um, is that we're all in the business of experience. We're not in the business of selling products. We're in the business of experience. And in the C-suite and the boardroom for the rest of us mortal folks who might say, you know, the big meetings, all of the directors need to realise we're in the business of creating and selling valuable experiences with all of the touch points all the way through. And I thought that was brilliant, even if it was a little bit lofty. BX 
sounds a little bit like <laughs> BS, doesn't it? Yeah. But it does make sense because rather than CX just being customer experience, being, you know, the domain of the marketing manager and the e-com salesperson, it's actually the way you talk. It is you're in the business of experience because you've always talked like that to me since we met first and started talking about doing this podcast episode quite a number of months ago because lockdown got in the way, didn't it? But can I ask you a question? So, I'm running this program at the moment, the growth strategy program, where we bring founders of kind of smart scaling brands at an an earlier stage than you, and we write their growth strategy over six weeks. And one of the things I would love to be able to kind of elucidate for them is what is the difference between if you have a D to C storefront, right, at that early stage in in a much earlier stage of your D to C or your e-com journey? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you might be just managing it yourself, whether it's a Shopify or it's on your own website. And then you get to your stage where you've really started to master and you've probably got people in the business or you've brought people in. I don't know if you've brought people in or kind of hired people with more experience. Very important. How different is the job to be done and in what ways is it different in terms of how you approached it back then where you were just like saying yes to the order and shipping it and maybe, you know, a handwritten note versus what you do now to really maximise the D2C experience for the shopper, the consumer? Yeah, it's uh, it's, a, it's a really good question. But and, and again, it's probably got there's so many different facets to it. But the, but the way I'd probably uh, I'd approach it if I was approaching uh, again from a from a much earlier stage is what you're trying to establish as you are with any new business, new brand, new product is you're trying to establish product market fit. And actually, that is there is no there is probably no better channel for that for the majority of for the majority of products than B two C. What I what I would focus on. Um, what you should be focusing on um, in the earlier days is is really about, and the best analogy is about a leaky bucket. The leaky bucket is, uh, if you've got a leaky bucket, if you keep pouring more stuff in the top, it's just going to keep leaking out. So you want to fix the leaky bucket. So what you're, the, the bucket is your conversion and the retention. You want to convert people. You want to convert people as seamlessly and as easily. So that's the customer experience. You know, you want to make it as frictionless and as fast as possible to convert them on your site. And then you want to retain them as customers rather than just pouring more water in the top, which is paid ads and, you know, various other activities that are going to suck up resource. Right. So back then you're kind of doing your paid ads and you're thinking it's okay. well, I've got my site and whatever. And then over time you're realizing, no, you know, there's no point in me spending loads of money on paid ads if when they get to the site, they're dropping away or if they're not coming back a second time. Exactly. And there's got, there's got to be a good mix. I mean, just on the subject of paid ads, I mean, we, we, we have a very clear strategy around earned and owned and, and the, the fact is that and, and paid. So um, you have to have a, a balance and a mix of that. But, but all of those activities mean nothing if someone's hitting your site and they're not converting quickly. Right. And then once you've got them as a customer, you're losing them because you're not retaining them because that then, that then goes from that customer, that's the longer term experience they have with the brand. So that's what, what is the customer, uh, what's the customer experience like post-purchase? How well do you communicate to them? Uh, what do they receive in, in the post? What, what, to your point, is it a handwritten note? Is it something more generic, et cetera? And there's some brilliant brands out there who have managed to master that experience at, scale, at relative scale as well. Yeah. And then all the way to when you open the product, does the cap hurt the inside of your hand and does it mess your hand? And then when you drink it, are you just overwhelmed by how amazing the product is? You know, I was putting together a worksheet for the January cohort who I'm working with at the moment. 
And a friend of mine from the States who was coming in as an expert Q&A on one of our workshops said to me, he said, Fee, you've missed one thing on that sheet because you've talked about it was about more the marketing mix. And I was talking about, you know, you know, what's your product and your range and your pricing and all the rest of it. And he said, you've missed one key thing, which is how bloody amazing is your product, you know? And it was true. I hadn't put it on there, but it was like, you need to stick it up at the top. You know, how amazing is your product? And I saw this amazing thing yesterday, which I put on LinkedIn, which was ask yourself the question, you know, what is not so amazing about your product? What's not so awesome about your product right now that you need to fix? Because often we don't look at that and we don't say, right, well, let's call it out and let's say what's not so great about my product. But it comes back to this journey, doesn't it? Even if you get them through the website, it's really easy technically for them to convert. And also in terms of the messaging and the visuals and all of the kind of the social proof, it's all there and they convert and they buy it and it arrives. But then the actual product itself doesn't deliver or the packaging and the opening and the usage doesn't deliver. It'll let you down, right? Big time. So, I mean, it's, it's a bigger subject, actually, product. I mean, we've, we've um, and, and you've consumed Moju, so you, you, know, you know what that experience is like. Um, and as I said, that relentless pursuit of quality as well. So for us, product's always been the absolute, we let the product do the talking. And that's been a big part of it. And I think a lot of, a lot of, a lot of brands, smaller brands particularly, forget that, um, is it is about the product. But coming back to D2C, that's your opportunity. Because if it arrives and, and someone gives you feedback and they say that didn't taste right or I wasn't quite enamored with it for whatever reason, you get that feedback. So there's part of the feedback loop that you can generate, whether it be, you know, the way we did it in the early days was through through some D2C, but in real life as well. We were doing a load bunch of sampling, loads of sampling just there with the with the consumer, understanding what they like, what they didn't like. Um, and that then fed back into our product development. So D2C has the power to help you do that as well. And it's all about an iterative process. So it's live market research, isn't it? And that's the other thing I think about, you know, insurgent brands that really make it. It's this relentless curiosity to really understand what their consumers like. It's sam- yours for you, you know, what you just talked about there. Sampling wasn't just because you thought, oh, well, if people try it, maybe they'll buy it. Sampling was just as much, if not more, to find out what they did like. And then again, you know, iteratively change and, you know, make it better. Exactly. Okay. So did you bring someone in just to, to wrap up on the D2C side? I know we'll, we'll keep touching on it as we go through, but did you decide at a certain point that it was time to bring in someone who knew more than you did? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that happened, that happened quite quickly, to be honest, um, in terms of, you know, the, the it, it's something that you can you can muddle through and you can figure stuff out as you go along. It's the same as across. Again, it's no different to any other channel or the rest of the business. You can get through and you can figure it out, but it takes you a lot longer. Um, and it, it's a fast moving channel, and you have to iterate and you have to have a mind to iterate very very quickly. So yeah, we we brought we brought some amazing people in. But what I'd say to those who are earlier in their journey is there's also some really great. Uh, freelance consultants who you can you can bring into the mix and they can help you and they can help you establish um, a strong platform from which to grow. But there is there's always inevitably an inflection point where you actually have to you you have to likely bring that talent in house because if you're really serious about the channel, you're going to get a, a barrage of LinkedIn requests now of people going. Hey, you mentioned you mentioned on the podcast that you know a load of uh, really good consultants. Please, can you give us a name? So get ready for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask them if they're willing to be uh, put out into the world. No, it's, it's all good. Yeah, great. I'm sure they're not going to say no to that. So look, talk to us briefly about the, the different stages that the business has gone through. And I'm aware of time. So 
and, and there's loads more I want to get through. But just really briefly, what would you say the big phases are? So people who are listening can say, right, I'm in that phase. That's going to be my next phase. And what kind of changes did you need to make and say in terms of team or resources or capabilities for each of those big phases? Phases will be, I'll, I'll, I'll caveat this with phases will be very different for each business, but, but they do tend to follow a bit of a theme. If you as a business, and we, we'll, we'll likely get on to, to funding and financing later, but if as a business you've gone through the more traditional, what is now the more traditional approach in the UK, which is angel rounds and EIS and SEIS investment, et cetera, you tend to follow a, a relatively similar path. So the, the early phase for us was, you know, real grassroots stuff. So in the early days, we were selling at music festivals. Um, we were growing the, the brand through sort of speciality coffee shops in London. That was our real, that's something that I would always be a massive proponent for is find a channel where you are pretty much the only person in that channel doing what you're doing. Mm. And then just really, and just absolutely go after it, have faith in the fact that that's going to work. So we identified speciality coffee in London, there's a lot of coffee shops there. No one was selling. No one was selling the product that we were selling in there. No one was providing the service where we were. No one was going around knocking on doors and, and following up each week and seeing how sales were. So it gave us this captive channel to go after. Now that is a significant. I would always be a proponent for that when you're building grassroots, um, rather than jumping into bigger stream again because we could learn. And also, it meant that we had we actually generated quite significant sales out of a out of uh, and it was a very relevant target audience you know early adopter type crowd who are drinking speciality coffee busy on the move buying them alongside their coffee in the morning so we had that and then we also had a small e-com channel as i said so so in terms of d2c so we were always doing an element of d2c so that was the first phase and that was that was also sampling and things like that getting to understand what the consumer was into what they weren't and were you making it where were you making it then sorry to interrupt you but where were you making the product there so we we had outsourced by by that point really so charlie and i were i mean without going into the the tradition it's it's a bit of a well-trodden path now i mean and it can, i think it can get a little boring to be honest why we started this business now. yeah 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 <laughs> Two corporate blokes who got, you know, got fed up with corporate life and started juicing ginger in their in their kitchen. Changed but that's your life. Basically, what happened? So <laughs> changed the life. It so we, we life. started, but but it is. It's, it's the truth. No, I know. Though. I know. It's um, the truth. It's it's brilliant. And that's why you finally continued to change your life. And now I'm really jealous because you got two surfboards in an amazing looking office <laughs> down on the south coast, right? Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> And a Peloton, and a Peloton, I can see it. So don't tell the local thieves though, they'll be straight in here. Oh Jesus, um, yeah, it's not a Peloton, it's a, it's, a total, it's a total fake one. That's okay. Yeah, it's, it's a rip-off, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, no, so the, the, we, we, did, we did make the products ourselves for a period of time, but it, it was, we always had the eye on, on co-manufacturing. In our category, it makes a lot of sense, the co-manufacturer. It helps to keep the business lean in certain areas. There's not huge CapEx investment. And a lot, there's a lot of economies in scale, in scale of buying fruit, veg, spices, botanicals, and things like that. So, uh, which would be very difficult to achieve. If so we're building phase ourselves. one. So that was the rates. early stage. Yeah. Then we launched into bigger retail. So phase two was sort of launching into bigger retail, um, pulling every single lever we possibly could to drive rate of sale performance and sort of delivering against operational KPIs. So by, by operational KPIs, I mean availability making sure that we weren't shorting the retailers. So we were doing, again, customer experience. 
that this time your customer is the retailer. You know, we were early in the journey, but what we did know is that we had to do what we said we were going to do. And, and that included from a sales perspective, making sure we were driving rate of sale, which again, because we had strong product market fit and it was a great product, even though it was a smaller brand, people were buying it and then they were coming back to buy it again. And that's what's super important. Did that mean even going into store and making sure it was on shelf just because you had a listing didn't mean it was going to be stocked in the right place at the right time? Definitely. All of that stuff. The stuff that, the stuff that is hard, you know, hard work, hard graft, uh, wearing out, you know, the old expression of wearing out shoe leather. But that is it. It's not very profitable years, those years. No, very challenging. And um, when you're particularly in a beverage business as well, as you know, beverage is, is particularly capitally intensive um, and can be. It, it, was, it was expensive. Okay. So you have to have the right, this comes to the financing again, you have to have the right, the right investors and angels who understand it's going to be an expensive journey. And did you have investors and angels at that point? We did. By this point, we had, um, we had brought on uh, a smaller group of, from various backgrounds, angels who, some industry guys, but then also some, some finance type guys. And they've been really supportive throughout. And they've kind of let us get on with it as well, which is, which is really important in my view, um, rather than uh, giving, us, gi- giving us loads of demands each week um, for information. So they've just let us get on with it. And we've always done what we said we're going to do. And that's what's super important. So that was phase, that was phase two, really, was getting into bigger retail, um, but then dri- driving rate of sale. Then I'd say the, the, the third phase was really about building on community. And, and that's through social, in real life, as I've mentioned as well. So that's supporting run clubs, CrossFit, cycling. So these are our core audiences, um, particularly in the earlier days, but, but even so now. And then a bunch of other sort of sub-elite, as we call them, an, an elite level sport. So by sub-elite, it's people who are casual, but maybe, you know, casual, uh, still working, but are elite level sort of marathon runners and stuff like that. So we're supporting that those different communities, but we're very focused on an active, as I said, an active consumer. And we now also count uh, multiple premiership rugby and football teams as customers of Moju. So... I think we've got at last count 13 premiership football clubs who actually buy Moju and incorporate that into their into their nutrition protocols. That's amazing. So it's a significant thing. And that that I would say is the third phase because that's the brand that's the real brand building part and the community building part and that's why they're so closely linked. So to your point about making noise whilst we've not had poster campaigns everywhere we've been making noise but we've been making noise in various in, in the communities. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I'm surprised that that isn't a case study out there already. You know, I can just imagine this being a brilliant case study in exec business school of how to build communities in in the right place. And, you know, if you're not part of that, you know, sub-elite group, you might know about it, but it doesn't matter. So, yeah, fabulous. Really interesting. So then what's the last stage? The last phase is the, is the one where I guess we're in at the moment, but it, it, it really kicked off in 2019. So there, there's, of course, uh, brands globally that, that, that are offering a similar, similar proposition to us. So ours, is, ours is a little different in terms of how we, how we positioned it. Um, we've positioned it very function forward, um, very much about that initial experience you have when you consume the product, but then also about the longer term um, impact positive impact of taking the product on a daily basis. Um, but we were the first globally basically to launch a, a take home product. So, um, and we call that the dosing bottle 
which is the 500 mil I, I spoke of earlier. So that was in 2019, 19, late 2019. And it's been growing very quickly ever since. So where can that be bought? Uh, across across the board. So Sainsbury's, uh, Waitrose, Ocado, Amazon, uh, B2C. Uh, not in, uh, we, we do have listings with the likes of Boots and WH Smiths, but of course that's grab and go. So that's our 60 mil in those, in those listings. But as a format, the, the dosing bottle is, as I said, but really becoming a fridge staple. And I mean, the stats and data on it is quite, quite staggering actually when we look at the repeat purchase rate versus something like uh, an orange juice for example um we're on par with an orange juice which is which is um in one one of the big retailers um Mojo is bought as frequently as uh, as orange juice um so it's it's showing that this has a it's playing a part in people's lives on the daily which is which is awesome that is unbelievable have you seen an increase in uptake in the vitamin d product since the whole covid and vitamin d becoming famous um Yes, in short, um, it's it's now one of our top performing products, which is saying something because because the the top two have pretty pretty performed pretty well, um, very well, and that's really I mean that product was in in development for a year, and I, I remember when it was first conceptualised. I was I think it was it was 2019, mid 2019, um, earlier in 2019. I was looking out the window at a grey sky. In I was sat in my bedroom office at the time looking at a grey sky in the middle of London thinking, and that's where the, the concept really came from, was the fact that then the more research we did into vitamin D, it's actually a staggeringly, it's a staggering thing that we are, the broad, broad population is suboptimal. So it's not that we're all deficient, which is to be deficient, you have to be very low, but you can very much be suboptimal. And vitamin D plays such a crucial part in so many aspects of, of human health. Um, and the fact that we are also, uh, that we are suboptimal is, is staggering and actually quite scary in a way. That's why we, we, we brought a product to market that had, um, essentially has over, it's actually got twice your daily, daily requirement as recommended by the NHS. And the reason we put twice in, um, of a, and it, by, um, it is also a, a whole ingredient. So it's from seaweed. So it's a seaweed ex- extract, which is oh, wow. a D3, which is from a bioavailability point without getting too sciencey, but is the type of D3 that your body can absorb more easily than D2. Uh, we took it from a whole ingredient, as I say, from seaweed extract. So, but it's, it's something that, uh, it's very difficult to get from your diet. Uh, it's very difficult to get vitamin D from your diet. You get the the majority of your vitamin D from the sun, which of course is something that we don't, we're not particularly blessed with here in the UK. And particularly now that we're all inside a lot of the time. All year round. So we provide, we provide twice the recommended by the NHS, but then the NHS, uh, unfortunately, the way that they have calculated that amount is based on very old studies on uh, a white Caucasian population um, and one that is predominantly meat eating, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an amazing product and, and we get, we got loads of good feedback on it. Um, and it's one that we've, it's been a real, it's actually been a genuine privilege to be able to sell a product like that in a year that we've just had, where, you know, you're having a, a material impact on people's lives. So that's good. Listen, a question about, um, price of your product versus, you know, other stuff in the category that you sit in. So if I walked into Sainsbury's and where would I pick your product up? Is it beside the kind of the functional juices in the big bottles like Innocent? Yeah, so you, so you would find the dosing bottle in that fixture. In that fixture. And how much more expensive is it versus a normal juice and then versus a, like a juice plus product? So 
Uh, it depends on serving size. So I guess you've got, uh, if you take a 750 mil um, juice, you're looking at what, 350, four pounds, probably something like that. Uh, depends on whether you're going home label or, or branded. Um, our product is um, 6.95. So, but it's on a per serving. So this is the this is my point earlier around the concentration of the liquid. It's it's not it's not a the fact the fact of the matter is we we don't count ourselves as a juice product because what we're delivering is not is not refreshment. The reason I'm asking this question is, you know, I can imagine a small, smart scaling business and you've got a, a great proposition, but it's quite expensive because you haven't got your cogs down yet and you haven't got the scale. And you're thinking, you know, it's for a market that's not mass market. It's for a very particular use for a particular set of people. It's going to be too expensive for people to buy. I'm not going to get enough people. You know, is there a market in the niche? You know? What would you say, because people are buying your product at $6.95, you're selling 9 million quids worth of product. There's enough people out there that Sainsbury's and, Tesco and all of these stores are giving you lots of stores. So why is that? What would you say to these people? There's a, uh, for us coming to the, to the affordability part, it, it's something that we're really focused on because if we're going to have a, 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 an impact at scale, we obviously need to be able to, to get as many people into the brand as possible from all walks of life. So there is always going to be a, it's always going to be a premium price product, but um, there are other opportunities for us, which is around format. So it might it might be, so what we're looking to do actually is, is launch a slightly smaller dosing bottle for a start. Um, so it's a slightly smaller dosing bottle. It's got less servings in it, uh, but it brings the price down. It makes it more affordable still. But I suppose the point is, is that it is possible. It is possible to have a very expensive product out there. And it mightn't be, you know, in the short to medium term, it mightn't be available to everybody. And that's obviously unfortunate. But for those people who are thinking, my product's just too expensive, you know, I'm not going to get it into mass distribution. What I'm saying is, is that if your product offers a proposition that is really, really valuable to a distinct group of people, they are going to be willing to pay a particular price for it. So you've just got to make sure that your targeting is right and that your value proposition in terms of the product you're delivering and the experience you're delivering is right. And then you will be able to charge the price that you need to charge. I mean, it's about that. Yeah, it's, that is value perception. That's everything with consumers. Um, it's, a, it's a functional product. So to your point, it's being bought for, for a purpose, not just, to, not just to satiate people or to hydrate them. So... It's being bought for a purpose, so it's value perception. So that's all down to experience. Now, the barrier, the, the the challenge, of course, is to get someone a first time, someone first time to pick up that bigger dosing bottle at that price. That's where, for us, our grab and go is a really useful, a really useful way for us to get people into the brand at a lower price point, so they can experience the product. But the experience and the value perception is absolutely crucial, and that is why. That is why there's other brands who have entered the category, including very large incumbents um, who've entered the category that we are, you know, that we've got at the moment, there is absolute, we have absolutely no problem with. Um, it's good that they're entering the category. They're validating the concept and the format, but the experience they're delivering is very subpar and that's why they're not performing. So Rich, you said before we, we started the show that you're at a really interesting uh, stage of the business in terms of financing and financing deals. Can you talk to us a little bit about where you're at with that right now? Yeah, it's a, it is an exciting phase for us. Um, 
we've we've which we touched on earlier we've we've grown the business through the support of, of angels really multiple rounds um smaller rounds but it's allowed us to go at the pace we needed to go at um, but when you're building an in, an insurgent category um as you know there there does come a point where you really need to start to invest in in how you're activating um that category um and activating the brand um and building the category at a more uh, accelerated rate um so that's why yeah after a significant amount of time of getting to know getting to know a partner um we've recently closed a a minority round um led led by them um which is the venture arm of one of the world's leading food businesses wow that's exciting yeah it is exciting and and as i say a huge a huge part of that was around the people um involved and the value that they can bring alongside just uh, just the capital itself they've got a very strong or very strong sustainability credentials they're focused on on bringing uh, health uh, to 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 people through food which is of course um very much the mainstay of what we're about which is is not just health but also function and helping people to live uh to live successful um happy uh, active busy lives so it's it there's a real synergy there between us for sure our minds are swearing we're like who is it who is it he said food he didn't say beverage okay we know who it isn't yeah. <laughs> well it's quite, it's quite interesting when you think of uh when you think of of the moju proposition as i've alluded to it's not really a beverage it's more food in its nature okay interesting um in a way uh, you you do drink it but it's it's the function it delivers so i guess uh, the broader the broader brush i would call them a food business but they do have they do have beverage brands within their portfolio as i say it's a minority investment that that they've led we've also uh, we'll we brought some really brilliant investment partners partners in from other other who are bringing a different perspective all together um which which is which is great so that uh, the likes of sort of d2c um guys who've built d2c businesses uh, etc so we've got a really good mix of people um to help take us through to or take us on to the next stage so really big ambitions then absolutely yeah i i think when well we we knew from the outset what we wanted to create was we've never been here to create the the biggest business at all costs we've been here to build a modern progressive uh food and beverage business um one that's really focused to your point on community the value that we give to to people um and also one that's that's conscious of our impact on the planet and one that can be hugely influential and that's that's the brand that we want to build and that takes that takes time and and it also requires investment as well so yeah really excited to be uh to be moving on to the next stage. Well, listen, there's so many more things I'd love to ask you about. You know, we haven't touched on people at all and maybe next time you come on, you know, hopefully by that stage, you'll have announced, um, you know, if any interesting deals have been made and we'll be able to get you back on. And I'd really like to talk about, you know, if that ever happens for you, what it's like working with partners in your business and also looking at your team and understanding how you've built your team along those different phases of the business because we haven't done that today. And I know team is incredibly important to you and that you always talk about how grateful you are Absolutely. for the way in which your team has helped you build that business. So look, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. It's been fabulous to get to know you. I'm always, you know, blown away by how articulate, how articulate, that's kind of ironic that I, that I said that wrong, isn't it? But how articulate you are about, um, <laughs> about how your business has progressed. Genuinely, I really am, you know, because your background's not FMCG at all, is it? It's something totally different. 
quickly career path, but I was an engineer turned investment banker for my sins. Okay. Yeah. So you really talk really clearly and it's, it's really helped me understand a lot of things and I'm sure it's helping the listeners as well. Thank you so much, Rich. We will check in with you again in six or eight months and I've really enjoyed the show. So thanks so much. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks, Vee. And cheers for having me on. Oh, thank you. Bye bye now. 